Artificial intelligence and virtual reality are often seen as different emerging technology trends, but as we see in this episode, uh, there is in fact a lot of overlap between AI and VR, and it's often in areas that people don't exactly suspect. Uh, we interview uh, Dr. Adam Rowell, uh, who is CTO at Lucid VR here in the Bay Area. He got his PhD uh, from Stanford um, and speaks about how artificial intelligence plays a role in making virtual reality work, uh, making the accuracy of the images and the immersive experience really convincing for users that artificial intelligence actually plays a role there. In addition to that, Adam speaks with us about some of the non-gaming VR applications that he and his company Lucid VR are excited about seeing sort of transpire in the future. So certainly an interesting episode. Hopefully you guys enjoy this one. So Adam, I wanted to speak with you first before we even get into your ideas about um, sort of the, the future markets and use cases of virtual reality as to the intersection of VR and machine vision or computer vision. I know that your own academic background is more on that side, and I don't think that most people really see much of a crossover between, or laypersons, anywho, would see much of a crossover from machine vision to virtual reality. How, how do those intersect? Right, that's a great question. So uh, at this point with our company, we're focusing most of our time on our camera itself and our algorithms and just the video quality, but machine learning does play a pretty big role in it. Um, so there's two aspects to the machine machine learning computer vision side of, uh, of virtual reality. One, and the thing that we're focusing on the most, is calibration. So uh, we basically are making a 3D camera here, and there's very specific calibration parameters that go into that. But over time, people are going to put wear and tear on this camera. It's going to change slightly. It's going to heat up. It's going to get a little bit bent. And so the calibration parameters that go in during manufacture time are going to need to be constantly updated and constantly tweaked as time goes on mm. to make sure that this camera is going to work really, really well. And so the best way that we're thinking about doing this is actually through a machine learning process. So as our camera gets used over time, as it gets used continuously, we're constantly taking measurements. Uh, and then we're training machine learning algorithms to actually try to optimize those calibration parameters in real time as the camera gets used. Um, so it's not exactly computer vision, but uh, we're still using machine learning in the background to, uh, to update and to uh, make the best decisions we can to, uh, to optimize the video quality for the user. Interesting. So I'm going to delve into that just a smidge. So, so we're talking about um, the, you know, when, when the camera is made versus six months later or in the summer or in the winter or what have you, there will be slight differences in, you know, the, the, nanometer dimensions of uh, whatever plastic or glass and metal and other parts that are going to be in the machine. And what, what you're saying is that in order to have all of the factors and features aligned so that this feels immersive and feels real and responds the way VR really should in, in sort of an ideal world, in order to calibrate to that in all those conditions when, you, when things can happen to, to the equipment itself, You'll, you'll need to adjust for that with algorithms. How, how does that work? How are you able to plan for that or tweak that um, you know, in, in lay terms? Yeah, that's a great question. So at manufacture time, um, each of the cameras will be very slightly different. And microns, you know, micrometers matter here. Yep. Um, when we go and we do a calibration on every single individual camera on the manufacturing line, we're going to set a whole bunch of parameters that depend very specifically on the lens orientation, the image sensors, et cetera. And every camera is going to be very slightly different. And so we have methods where we can evaluate just how good each calibration is. So we make sure that all of our calibrations are top quality before sending them out. Yep. And one way to do that is we can put, uh, we can look for, say, straight lines in the scene. 
uh, you know, any doors or walls or seams, anything that looks straight, uh, when we actually do our calibration and play it back to the user, to the user, it should look perfectly straight as well. And so over time, what we can do is we can look in all of our scenes every time we're recording, and we can try to find as many straight lines as we can, and we can just constantly check to make sure that straight lines are staying perfectly straight. And over time, if those calibration parameters start to get slightly off, or if your camera gets a little bit warped or bent or heats up, uh, the straight line will no longer be perfectly straight. And so we can use a machine learning process to go and uh, start perturbing, start changing those calibration parameters, uh, trying to make very small changes to see uh, what parameters can be changed to make straight lines look look better. Uh, and that that is actually a really good uh, a really good way to make sure that your calibration is staying in sync uh, over time. Interesting. Okay, yeah, because you you need some degree of a constant to. Uh, compare against, I suppose. If, if you want to calibrate and make sure your images are correct, it's very difficult to create an algorithm, I can imagine, that would know exactly what a cat's, this particular cat's face looks like from this distance, or this particular chair looks like from this angle under this lighting. You, you couldn't possibly uh, program and factor in for all of that, nor would, would, you know, would it even be reasonable. Um, so it sounds as though the reference point is what is straight and what can we do to tweak in real time, you know, given temperature or the differences per device, um, the straightness of the elements that are in our field of view? And the farther we are from straight on these factors, we could we could probably guess that that would be a uh, you know a more deviant device. That that one would need to need more calibration than one that is showing these objects to be straight. So that's sort of the the reference point for these algorithms. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when the calibration parameters are slightly off, um, your scene will look a little bit warped. And uh, when when uh, the scene is warped, when uh, what you're viewing is not uh, calibrated properly, uh, things will be you know, slightly twisted, slightly uh, slightly uh, warped. It'll just look a little bit funny. Yeah. So the, the one, one of the best metrics we've come up with, and there's been actually a lot of papers on this as well, is just look for straight lines. If you can make straight line straight, then your uh, calibration is probably going to be pretty good at the end of the day. Nice. Yeah. And it's, it's a good enough constant, you know, in, in most scenes or circumstances, I mean, if so long as you're not in a, a jungle or something along those lines, there's likely to be something that is straight. And uh, if you can maintain that, then that's a, a nice benchmark. Now I can imagine that essentially all VR manufacturers must struggle with this, at least to some degree, right? I mean, uh, Oculus and these other folks, presumably if, if the devices you're making are you used a very interesting term, uh, very slightly different, which which again it is very because it matters, like you said, right? Micrometers matter in this particular instance um, because there's slight differences. Do 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 essentially all um, VR headset makers have to consider this? No matter what their application, did, are they all going to have to factor for variance and wear and tear and still being able to calibrate uh, the device to fight warp? Yeah, I think this is going to be a big problem uh, going out in the future. I think at this point, there just aren't that many devices out there in mainstream. Yeah. And so there hasn't been too much research on it, and there hasn't been too much time put in trying to solve this problem. But uh, we've seen with our camera, because we're going for the most immersive experience possible, uh, even very slight differences in the calibration can you know, start to be noticeable to the user, or at least to the, uh, to the expert users. Um, and so we know a lot of cameras that are getting built right now have calibration parameters that are locked in at manufacture time and don't update. And I think it remains to be seen, you know, how that's going to hold up over time as these cameras get uh, get used over the next couple of years. And so, uh, yeah, with our camera, we want to make sure that uh, you know, two, three years down the line, these are still going to have a good experience with it. 
and isn't going to get frustrated that the the quality isn't as good as the day they bought it. Yeah, curious, curious. So, um, and if you have enough devices out there and you can train enough of them under enough different circumstances, hopefully you can adjust those algorithms to make it so that two, three, four years out, if you've got enough of them out there and enough data to, to really balance them, um, that you can make them sort of just work, as I suppose all consumers hope their technologies do. Exactly, yep. exactly. So, um, on to a little bit more about where VR is headed. I I'm I'm not I'm not against video games in any way, shape, or form, but I'm I'm certainly distantly far from a gamer, um, and and I happen to be of the belief that virtual reality, uh, really in its in its full form, will will have grand grand implications and applications that will really just just sort of outshine any applications in gaming. I think gaming is a fantastic test bed. I think gaming is a a great way to 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 uh, initially bring these products to market. It, it seems very clear that that's where the market is today. Um, you know, for for the average uh, person, uh, VR and gamers is sort of a, a more natural marrying. But I'm I'm excited that uh, you folks are, are are not necessarily moving in the gaming direction. When you set out to create this product, what were the trends that you saw in VR? I know there's a lot of great uh, virtual reality work, um, even just at Stanford where you got your PhD. You know, Balenson's got a Fantastic lab. I think Zuckerberg was there before he bought Oculus, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you clearly have thought a little bit through where this market is headed, where the applications are. What does the world look like in the future of VR to you? What got you guys excited? Yeah, I mean, I think you just made a great point there. Uh, about a year ago, when we were getting started, we saw virtual reality, and we went to these conferences with all these new VR companies. And virtually every single company there was a gaming company. Yeah. And so we said, well, hey, there's a huge market out there. All these non-gamers. Uh, let's try to build a product that appeals to them and can be used by anybody, any any consumer, not just the uh, the early adopting gaming community. And so we specifically went out and tried to build a product that would be uh, applicable to to all age groups and to uh, you know, to everyone, regardless of their their gaming abilities. Um, so in, in that uh, in that light, one thing I always uh, talk about when we're doing our pitches and we're not showing off our product to our friends is. You know, my mother is not going to go out and buy an Oculus headset uh, to do gaming. No. She's just not. But what she, what she will do is she would consider buying an Oculus headset if she could see her grandkids 3,000 miles away live at Christmas. And uh, we could just set up a camera and she could feel like she was in the scene and feel like she was part of the room, um, even though this was going on live 3,000 miles away. Yeah. I think that would be a really big draw for her to get into the virtual reality market, uh, whereas games is uh, certainly not going to be the reason that that's going to happen. So we see this huge, uh, this huge potential, this huge uh, consumer crowd of users who uh, who are really interested in VR, don't really know what it is, but uh, they want to have some way to experience it and use it without actually having to play games. And so it sounds to me as though you're touching on what maybe you see as the value prop of VR for the non-gamer, which is connectedness and relatedness. At least that's the one that you just touched on. Do you see that as, so right now, the main value prop of VR is Hey, it'll look like you're really shooting those aliens, right? That that's that's the whole value prop right now. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that's just the, the whole value prop right now. Um, I, you're you're touching on uh, something that that might appeal to you know the the layperson non gamer user who might not even be you know a techie by any means. Um, do you see that relatedness uh, fat, factor and facet as sort of what draws in that next wave of, of folks after the gaming crowd? Right. I, I see two different aspects, two different draws for the uh, for the consumer crowd. One is exactly what you just said, connectedness. 
being able to talk to somebody live thousands of miles away and feel like you're there. Um, business meetings, being able to set up a camera in a conference room, and then instead of just being in a conference call and kind of being disconnected from what's going on in the conference room, uh, you can actually feel like you're in the room with everyone else, see what's going on, uh, see the nuances of the business discussion you're having. Yeah. So I think connectedness is, is one aspect. I think the other major aspect is, uh, is the reason that YouTube got popular, and that's uh, experiences. Just being able to experience what somebody else experienced, um, even if it's after the fact. Things, uh, for example, one of the things we did with our camera is we uh, went skydiving and we uh, strapped the thing onto somebody's forehead when they went skydiving and the video was just absolutely amazing. And so you can play that back and experience what they experienced and suddenly you can do things and feel like you're doing things that you might not have the opportunity to do in real life or, or might not want to do in real life, but you can still see what it's like. So I think those two aspects, uh, relatedness and experience, are what's really going to drive yeah, the consumers to the virtual reality market. Yeah, and, and man, I mean, just imagine the world. I mean, in, in 10, 10 or 15 years or even less, um, when computers are, there's so much more raw computing power and there's so many users out there leveraging virtual reality and, and, and uh, leveraging technologies like the GoPros of the world and all the variants that, in, that undeniably will, will be spawned uh, from, from, sort of the, this, this digital social future that we're stepping into when there's so many experiences that you can step into, right? In YouTube, there are so many, we could say there's so many experiences you can step into in terms of videos, right? If I want to learn how to, um, uh, you know, if I want to, if I want to brush up on my Java or if I want to learn Taekwondo or if I want to, um, see what a Limp Biscuit concert was like in 1998. I totally, I totally don't. But, but if I did, um, then, then I could, I could look all that up on YouTube. And there's, it's, it's, it's at a point now where there's, there's, there isn't much that isn't there. You know, it's very interesting. You know, my, my father only recently started going on YouTube, and he's, I think, 63, 64 now. Um, and, and the, what caught him is the fact that every song that he's ever loved. And every television show that he ever watched when he was young, all of the episodes ever are there when he types them in. So Joni Mitchell in live in concert at XYZ that he couldn't go to when he was 30-something <laughs> is, is, is right in front of his face. And so he's, he's uh, you know, he really considers himself thoroughly modern now that he's uh, found out YouTube. But, but I think that at a certain tipping point, right, it's very curious. I mean, that, that sets something off for me as a, a technology guy who's interested in adoption, um, that did it for him. You know, that did it for him. And I think that there's probably a tipping point in VR where there's enough experiences to step into where you're going to spend a certain amount of your time just stepping into them. You know, you're, exactly. not gonna, sure. you're not even going to want to learn Taekwondo on a video. You know, at a certain point, it'll really make a lot more sense to, you know, so long as you have a room, I guess, that you can do this safely in, to, to, uh, <laughs> To, to, to leverage virtual reality and, and potentially at some point this will also involve haptic technology and all the rest of that. So, so, you, see, so you see experiences and relatedness as some of the, the biggies moving forward. I think that that's quite insightful and I, got, I know there's, there's a lot of great science in, in the VR world um, you know, at Stanford where you're from. Um, how do you see some of that manifesting? So let's say five years from now, you know, yourself as a technology guy, thinking about the future, thinking about where you're going to bring this technology. Um, where where might society be? What what might be some of the shifts as the as the lay folks start to step onto these platforms? Do you think it mostly will be mothers and grandkids? Do you think it'll mostly be maybe a younger crowd first? 
Um, how do you potentially see it rolling out? How's the world going to be different? Um, I, I think it's going to roll out in a pretty similar fashion the way that uh, 2D high-quality video rolled out. It'll probably start with like your extreme sports people. Um, it'll start with your, your college students, your younger crowd, and then it'll expand from there. Uh, people will start making cool experiences. They'll draw on their friends by show, wanting to show those things off in 3D um, on virtual reality headsets, and it'll, it'll slowly grow from there. I think one of, the, one of the big drivers here is the fact that there's a lot of content playback devices. There's a lot of headsets, the Oculuses, the, uh, the Samsung yes. players, the Google Cardboards, but there's not so much yet in the recording aspect. Um, there are some 360-degree 3D cameras out there, but for the most part, there are many thousands of dollars. Yep. So I think the, the really key point here is going to be when, when a company, and you know, full disclosure, our company makes, uh, makes a 3D camera as well, but when a, when a company is able to make a consumer-grade camera that can let anybody, let consumers record experiences at a, uh, at a consumer price point as well. And I think it's going to take uh, basically a GoPro of 3D and a GoPro of VR to, uh, to really explode and just make all, these, uh, make all this recording available to the masses. And once that happens, then I think you're going to see uh, you know, websites like YouTube uh, or Facebook who uh, become the, the social platform for sharing all of this 3D experience. To, uh, to really blow up and, and start expanding that to uh, to everybody. Yeah, you know, we had talked off microphone, you know, that uh, back in back in the old days, you know, an, an arcade was a place where you would go where there were computers and games um, because, man, it was pretty expensive. Um, but then at a certain point, it, I mean, I'm sure there's still folks that go to arcades, but I, if I'm not mistaken, there's a lot more money spent in the home devices because the cost has, has taken us there. It sounds like what you're saying is, when there are enough cameras that have permitted us to create this vast, vast, almost endless ecosystem of experiences, as has already happened in you with YouTube in a very short time, when the same thing happens in 3D, then from from what I'm gathering from you, um, you know that that in many respects will be the tipping point for other people jumping in and other people wanting to experience what other folks have. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think a lot of the 3D content out there that you see now is highly curated and professionally produced. Yep. And that's mainly because the only cameras available are really expensive and are used by, are used by professionals. So I think that uh, there'll be a tipping point when the prices come down enough that uh, you know, more and more people can start getting these cameras. And as these cool 3D experiences get shared with everyone else, people are going to want their own camera so they can do the same thing. Yeah. And they can record their experiences and they can relive their experiences. Uh, they can relive their vacations a year or two later. And it's, it's wild. I mean, I really think that even the business applications, um, you know, uh, revamping the way that you do meetings, um, you know, with, with folks that are remote on uh, being able to have some degree of, of face to facedness um, as, as much as you can, I guess. Um, and, and then similarly, you know, interacting with information, you know, if, if, if you can, if you can, we interviewed a company close to two years ago called Murray VR. Um, I think they were out in Iceland or something. Pardon me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, founder of Murray, but uh, where, where essentially in your VR headset, you have all of your various screens. You know, there's many people like myself who work with, you know, five or more monitors at a time. Um, but if in, in VR, you wouldn't need physical screens. You could just move boxes with whatever applications up at any time in three dimensions and interact with them in any way. And, and I think that that opens up vast magazines of opportunity there too. It's, it's really, really fascinating where that might go. But it's also curious to see where you see the bigger trends coming on with the shared experiences and relatedness, and I think there's a lot to be said of that. My last question, Adam, and I'll, I'll keep it brief. Um, I know that you folks have done 
a little bit of bootstrapping to get what you've got uh, sort of off the ground in addition to raising some angel bucks um, to, to get your device made and manufacturing's not cheap and really keep the ball rolling on the technology company you're building. There's probably a lot of folks who are tuned in here. Uh, a, who we certainly have interviewed our share of investors and I'm sure there's investors that have tuned in, but I know there's also a lot of founders. Um, you're a PhD uh, and now you, now you have the job of not just talking about these topics academically, but explaining them to folks who maybe aren't technical, maybe don't plan on learning machine vision or, or machine learning, um, but who do want to understand the technology well enough to make the decision to invest or not. What have you had to do to sort of take complex technical topics and simplify them in ways to you know, really garner interest from investors? What lessons have you learned there that might transfer to other folks? Sure. Yeah. So I've done plenty of uh, technical pitches to investors, angel investors, VCs, et cetera. And uh, a lot of them have gone really well and a lot of them have gone uh, really poorly as well. <laughs> so I think the, the biggest lesson learned here is that uh, a demo is absolutely invaluable. We can do all the talking we want. We can explain the technical aspects. We can explain what, uh, what our camera is supposed to do in theory. But unless you have an actual working demo that you can hand an investor and give them an example of, uh, how it actually works in practice, and then give them an example of what the content looks looks like when you play it back. I mean, that is just the biggest selling point by far. Got it. So, so my advice to people that are working in the VR space, um, you know, even if you can only make a demo that's one-tenth the quality, just make any kind of demo you possibly can to, to show it off, to get a sense of just what, uh, what your content looks like when you play it back. Um, I think virtual reality is so new, people have a hard time uh, trying to think and imagine what, uh, what all this content is going to look like unless they actually put the headset on. And then it just, you know, it just hits them like, Oh, now I see yeah. 3d content. This thing looks so realistic when I put it on. This is amazing. Uh, when can I, when can I buy one of these cameras? When can I invest? Yeah. I think it's, it's absolutely critical that, uh, in the virtual reality space, you can get any kind of demo working. Got it. So yeah, that makes a lot of intuitive sense and, and it's, it's probably relatively common knowledge, but I, I, I like the reiteration thereof. Because it is, it is drastically different, right? You probably remember the first time you threw an Oculus on, and it's, uh, you know, I mean, you probably you, you watch videos of it, but you really put it on, and you kind of get the sense of there's a little bit of whoa, you know. And and uh, it sounds like getting getting that reaction out of investors is an important facet too. Um, how much, how deep do you have to go into explaining the technology? I mean, it sounds as though you know the proprietary, super coolness of of the technological nuances that you're working in is presumably part of the selling point and, and part of your um, uh, sort of value proposition to, to an investor in some way, shape, or form. Um, a demo really simplifies a lot of that to the point where they can just get it in a very real sense. They can literally just get it. Um, what have you had to do to explain the science? Or do you try to limit that as much as you can? Do you try to come up with simple analogies and maybe only have two or three of them? What have you had to do there to still sound smart and like, you know, you're leveraging your full PhD brain here to, to build something unique and different in a, in a very tangible and invaluable way, but not to make everybody go to sleep or, or confuse them? <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, th there's a lot of investors who uh, aren't too interested in how it works technically, but uh, this is the Bay Area, and there are plenty of others who have PhDs themselves and really want to get into the nuts and bolts of how the thing works and uh, and how it's actually uh, operating in real time. Yep. So I think uh, some of the things that we, uh, some of the questions we're asked most and some of the, uh, the questions that we spent a lot of time answering to investors are just how does the calibration process work? 
And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, um, there's a lot of devices, a lot of cameras out there that just aren't perfectly immersive and don't look quite right. Yep. And so investors are really keen on, you know, uh, how what's different about your technology that makes it look uh, more 3D and more realistic than uh, than all these other companies that we're going to invest in. So I think it's really that's been one of the aspects where we've really had to uh, to hone our message and uh, you know really break down the calibration process so that we can explain it to the investors and they get a sense at least the technical ones of uh, of how it's how it's different and uh, and how it's new. And, and it also sounds like maybe as a closing point here, Adam, like you just said, some folks are honestly not going to be all that interested uh, to to look at you know your nanomicron diagrams <laughs> and, and your you know your. Oh, sure. The particular way you're calibrating your machine learning algorithms around straight lines and floors and doors, um, but others are. So it sounds like part of your preparatory process is knowing who you're pitching, knowing what they're looking at and caring about. And if, if you're going to have to go with more of the pure experiential and, and analogy, then you go and you, you show up knowing that that's the case. But if you're going to walk up in, in front of other folks who you know are PhDs or have a technical background or have a firm interest in VR and might have a deeper knowledge then you're, you're going to know that you'll likely have to go farther down that rabbit hole. So it's right. like homework is key here. Exactly. And we usually work our way up to usually start at a high level. And then if investors are serious about investing, even if they're not technical themselves, they're, they'll more often than not find somebody technical to come in yeah. and evaluate our technology and really get down to the, uh, the nitty gritty on, uh, on how it works under the hood. Got it. Cool. Well, that, that is literally all the time that I have, Adam, but I think we got a lot out of this one. I hope the folks tuned in did as well. I appreciate you being here on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers, and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.